I've got an email a week or so ago uh, asking if I would talk about a particular topic. And I do requests. I mentioned that. So any of y'all listening at home have a request, uh, send it on in and I'll see what I can do. But this person sent a note, and he, and he included a, a quote from Joseph Goldstein, who's a, a, a very prominent teacher. And it says, All thoughts come and go. We can learn to be mindful of them and not to be carried away by the wanderings of our mind. With mindfulness, we can exercise wise discernment. Yes, I will act on this. No, I will let that one go. So that's the quote. And then the question was, I, he'd like to hear me speak about insight, the insight part of insight meditation, because it seems like thinking is necessary to develop wise discernment and insight. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about insight. We practice insight meditation. Vipassana is the Pali word. And so I went to my old faithful Wikipedia to, to look up the uh, uh, definition of insight and it's the capacity to gain an accurate and deep intuitive understanding of a person or thing so it's an accurate and deep and intuitive understanding of a person or thing and then insight meditation vipassana is the practice of continued close attention to sensation through which one ultimately sees the true nature of existence so it's the continued practice of close attention to sensation, to experience, to get to a point of ultimately seeing the true nature of existence. So that's what we're about when we're sitting and practicing this. I mean, this is sitting on the cushion is a practice in training the mind to begin to see clearly so that when we get up and walk around, we have a continuity of mindfulness and we have insight and discernment with us um, as we move through our lives. And it's said that this is the practice that the Buddha, um, this is what the Buddha practiced. Um, however, insight can be confusing or the idea of insight can be confusing just because it involves the mind and the nature of the mind can be confusing. And in the Dhammapada, this collection of Buddhist um, teachings, just little couplets, it talks about the mind, and I just love how it talks about the mind. I'm just going to read a couple of them. Um, it says, the, and then these are all the ways it describes the mind in the, in the chapter of the mind. Um, the mind flutters. It is unruly, capricious, rushing wherever it pleases. Um, the mind is extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases. It strays far and wide, alone, bodiless. It, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, and a mind out of control will do more harm than two angry men engaged in combat. I can, I can probably be, relate to that. So this is 2,600 years ago. The Buddha was talking about how the mind has a mind of its own. It's unruly and, and difficult to uh, maintain. Uh, but it's really necessary to do that. It's absolutely necessary. And um, that brings us to discernment, which is the wise way of judging between things, between um, 
particularly ways of seeing things. And so uh, it's a way of determining what thoughts may be beneficial and what thoughts may not be beneficial. So you begin to have a clarity. I mean, this, the mind is just going a million miles an hour. And a lot of times without any training in, in, the, in, the, in the words that they use in the suttas and the discourses, they often call, talk about uninstructed worldlings, people who have not kind of started doing this practice of paying attention and developing insight. Um, their minds are just running around willy-nilly, but if you begin to bring this insight training, then you begin to have discernment. And um, there's a couple of couplets about discernment in the Dhammapada. Um, Those who fail to distinguish the non-essential from the essential and the essential from the non-essential will, in feeding on wrong thoughts, fail to attain the essential. And on the other hand, the same thing is true. Those who can perceive important and non-important or essential and non-essential will feed in, on right thoughts and attain the essential, attain what's necessary, attain freedom and liberation. So this, this idea of discernment between thoughts is, is underlies the uh, uh, insight. Uh, or underlies wisdom, and there is a, you know, there's a way of asking questions around it. It's like, is this thought helpful? Is this thought necessary? Is this thought important? Um, the in the in the Eightfold Path, there is the one teaching on wise effort, which is recognizing when thoughts are present that are not skillful or beneficial, and letting them go. And then cultivating those thoughts which are beneficial and wise and skillful and keeping those there. So it's an important part of uh, the teaching is to begin to have this discernment. Discernment is part of wise effort. It's really necessary. And there's a line from one of the suttas, and it's, the question is, when insight is developed, what purpose does it serve? And the answer is discernment. It helps, insight helps to develop discernment. And when discernment is developed, what purpose does it serve? And the answer is ignorance is abandoned. Ignorance is abandoned. And ignorance or delusion is what is how we get so caught up in this, um, this world of craving and aversion. We get caught up in our... Um, we get caught up in our ideas about how things should be. We're caught up in our conditioning, our beliefs, the things we were taught, the things we heard, the way we were treated as human beings, all the things both in our families and in society and just things we randomly hear, they just kind of impact us and we create scenarios about shoulds and coulds and woulds and ideas about who we are and ideas about who you are and who they are. And it can cause a lot of suffering. It can cause a lot of suffering just because of this, this, this mind that doesn't see clearly. It believes, um, it believes the thoughts that show up. It believes the habits of mind. You know, um, the moon is made of green cheese. Oh, okay. And I will have to kill anybody who doesn't believe it because it's a rule. And I mean, that's a silly example, but you know these ideas about beliefs we have about ourselves that we're not good enough or we're, we're this or that or the other. I was um, 
I was told early on by my mom that I was uncoordinated. Uh, I don't know why she told me that, but all my life I believed, oh, I'm uncoordinated, oh, I'm uncoordinated. And then one day I was standing on one leg in yoga, you know, with one leg and one holding one leg out to the side, just balancing. And then it occurred to me, it's like, oh, I'm not uncoordinated. But I was given this message in all my life. I believed something, but had no clarity around it, no insight. It just So that's what happens. We just believe this stuff that we hear, that we're taught, that is um, uh, given us this deep conditioning. And if, if it's not related to reality, if it's too far removed from reality, we can cause a lot of suffering. That job, that relationship will make me happy for the rest of my life never works. And so the practice, the teachings in the Eightfold Path and putting the principles and practices of the Eightfold Path to work are, as um, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, a remedy for ignorance. He says the Eightfold Path is a remedy for ignorance because ignorance is what distorts our, our, our view of the world. We're not seeing clearly. We're de- living in delusion. And um, the Buddha said, the element of ignorance is indeed a powerful, a powerful element. It's what infiltrates and colors our, our view of the world. It's, that's what implicit bias does too. These, these biases or these memories, implicit memories that we don't, we're not cognizant of because they're unconscious, they're sometimes stuffed really, really, really down, deep within us. Um, they're not at the surface level at all, but they color how we see the world, the stories we've been told about ourselves, the stories we've been told about other people. And so it says, ignorance infiltrates and colors our thoughts, leading to multiple layers of delusion. So there are, del- and, and paramount among these, at least in Buddhist teachings, is seeing uh, or not seeing the three characteristics of existence, that things are impermanent. I talked about impermanence last week, that things are unsatisfactory, that we see, uns- we see that um, or we believe that, I keep saying putting all our eggs in one basket, believing that something that's impermanent will le- bring us permanent happiness, seeing that something that doesn't last will bring us lasting happiness. That is, um, that's getting caught up in the unsatisfactory nature, recognizing that there is suffering, but thinking somehow we can avoid it. That is, that is the, the, the wisdom of the second noble truth, are wanting things to be pleasant all the time and are doing whatever it takes to get to that place instead of recognizing that there is discomfort. There is loss and grief and sadness and aging and sickness and death and birth. That exists. Um, and then seeing this fixed self instead of a set of set of instead of recognizing that we are just a set of causes and conditions. I am I am not the same person all the time, you know. One minute I'm a person who wants something to drink, and then when I get something to drink, I'm not that person anymore. Does that mean I've changed? No, it's just causes and conditions. So ignorance distorts our view of the world, our view of, of ourselves, and wisdom reveals the nature of this distortion, cultivation of wisdom. So the training in wisdom centers on the development of insight and 
as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, it's the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path, as you probably know, is divided into three sections. The first section, wisdom, is the wisdom section. It's right view, right, right understanding, and right intention. Right view is recognizing the three characteristics, recognizing that things are impermanent and unsatisfactory and there's no fixed self, and then recognizing the, uh, 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 the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And then moving through the Eightfold Path supports us, you know, how to live in a way that's wise and skillful. It's mindfulness, concentration, wise effort, you know, beginning that, that practice of discernment. And so we don't just go through it once. We go, we, this, this Eightfold Path is just something that we live and helps us be in the world, cultivating discernment, cultivating wisdom. Um, and... Bhikkhu Bodhi again says, insight is a deep and comprehensive seeing into the nature of existence, uh, which fathoms the truth of our being in the only sphere where it is directly accessible, and that is in our own experience. Only through experience, our own experience, really being open to what's present, to what is happening, that's how we begin to develop insight. The practice of insight and seeing the nature of existence leads to an intuitive understanding of experience rather than intellectual. So there's an intellectual understanding of these teachings. There's an intellectual understanding that things are impermanent, that there is suffering. But that doesn't do it. What we have to do is begin to move towards an experiential understanding. And... Um, the Four Noble Truths, which is that there is suffering, the nature of suffering is, is craving, there is a way out, and that, that, that path is the Eightfold Path. The, there are three insights in each of these Four Noble Truths. Not, it's not often talked about, but um, Philip Moffat wrote a book called Dancing with Life. I have it right here. That's why I'm reading the title called Dancing with Life, where he looks at these 12 insights, three for each of the four factors. And basically, it, it's summarized by, for each of them, intellectually understanding the teaching and then experiencing it in your own life and then having an intuitive understanding or awareness of it, which doesn't require thinking. It's like if you learn a language and when you're first learning to speak the language, you are translating in your head. Hello, how are you? And it's like, how do I say that? Hola, como esta? You know, word for word. And then um, recognizing that it's like, oh yeah, that's what it is. And then at some point you get to this intuitive, somebody says, how are you? And you just respond, fine, thank you, without thinking. It, it's dropped down into the experience. And so in one of the suttas, it talks about this. It's the first sutta that the, um, it's said to be the first sermon that the Buddha gave after his enlightenment, setting the wheel of, uh, in motion. Um, suffering is the first, the first noble truth. Suffering is, suffering can be understood, 
And then suffering has been understood. We have to be willing to touch suffering, not just intellectually, oh, I understand that. But we have to be willing to be intimate with the experience. What does it feel like? Intimate with our emotions. You know, which is where, this is where I think spiritual bypass comes in. People intellectually understand the concept of suffering, but they're not willing to be with it. Instead, they start throwing teachings at it, going, well, I understand this, therefore I don't have to experience it. Um, I used to think that all the time. Just because I absolutely understood something meant I didn't, I wasn't going to, it wasn't going to happen to me. No, I got that. I, I see that coming. It's like, now it's going to happen anyway. It, you're going to experience it. You're going to feel it. And so, and then the second one, the, this is the cause of suffering, intellectually knowing it and then recognizing it. It's like, oh, when I, when I was caught up in that yesterday, that was creating my own suffering. And then, um, letting it go, recognizing I can abandon it, and then letting it go intuitively as you're happening. Having this, sometimes you have a thought that comes through like an old, old, old story, and you're getting ready to, um, you get caught in it, and then you, and then you recognize, and then you let it go. And then at some point, that story comes into your head, and you just see it. It has no, it has no, um, fangs or talons or velcro and it can't stick it just passes through it's like oh yeah that's actually nonsense story that's just old thinking and you may have already had that experience that's insight that's seeing clearly that that thought doesn't serve that idea is 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 an antique um you know, and so that's what this 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 practice of insight is. It's really coming into an experience of, and you have to be willing, as I said, to uh, be with the gritty nature of our lives, because that's the path of purification. That's what it talks about. We have to really sit in the fire and burn this stuff off, because intellectually it doesn't work. Jack Cornfield tells a story. In I think it's the, the preface to uh, Path with Heart. And he talks about having been a monk in um, Thailand for a while, and he intellectually understood these teachings. He knew them inside and out. He'd learned them. He'd recited them. They'd chant them. And so he said, I'm good. And then when he came back to the States, it kind of all went out the window because he got involved. He got a job and a relationship and, and living where he, I think he was living in New York City. So there was all this stuff. And he said, all that sitting on the cushion, all that training in the monastery in Thailand, it just went out the window. And then he realized he had to move into a place of being willing to touch that suffering, to really let it come from his head to his heart. And then he talks about going into therapy and, and doing things like that. And I had a, a similar experience of it wasn't until I started really being willing to touch the suffering that I had been piling stuff on top of. It's like burying something and then piling a bunch of rocks on top of it. I had to be willing to take those rocks off and open up and see what I'd thrown in there all those years ago unconsciously. Not intentionally on my part. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to take this feeling and put it down here and never feel it again. Um, although occasionally I did. 
I made these. I'm never going to do that again. And then, but that was just girding ourselves. That's building the armor. It's like, you know, the Paul Simon song, I am a rock. Mm, never going to love again. That hurts too much. I'm just going to put that onto the side. And so we have to be willing to do that. It takes A lot of times it takes therapy. It takes, a, it's not always just sitting on the cushion. We need other support. So to acknowledge that is really important, but it has to happen. In fact, one of my favorite, I don't know if it's my favorite, but a, a really important quote from Ajahn Chah is, um, you have to open yourself up to the suffering. There, and there are two kinds of suffering. There is the suffering that leads to more suffering, and there's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And if you're not willing to experience the latter, you will surely experience the former. You know, the suffering that leads to more suffering is the suffering where we're chasing. I feel uncomfortable. I'm going to chase something. That'll fix me. That'll fix me. It's your fault. Instead of really being willing to sit. And this is where the third piece comes in. And, and um, this is what Bhikkhu Bodhi was pointing to. This is Jack also talked about this. We have to be willing to sit with it in our bodies. You know, they, our bodies have so much wisdom. We have to be willing to feel this stuff. Where's the anger? Where's the discomfort? Where's the, the pain? Where's the grief? Where's the loss? Where is it? And so there's this experiential awareness, which then moves into this intuitive um, we have, we can now respond intuitively because we don't see it because it's part of our fabric. It's part of our fiber. It's become, we have this awareness, this insight and this discernment. It's really powerful. And I'm sure you can each find or, or come up with a, something, uh, uh, that you used to do that you don't do anymore and you don't actually have to think about it. It just, it just happens. And I don't even mean in the, in necessarily in the Buddhist realm, but, you know, through your lives, you've been willing to face things and go, I'm, I'm, that's not wise, that's not skillful, I think I'll put that down. And then slowly over time, it becomes a natural experience, a natural reaction. Um, it's like, I don't know what all that's coming up for me is like smoking. I quit smoking a long time ago. And now the idea of smoking just is like it passes by. There's no temptation. There's no anything. There's no, oh, I wish I could have a cigarette. No, there's none of that. It's just like it's gone. And I'm really grateful for that. It's part of my, it's not even something that comes up anymore. So there's things like that. So re recognize, maybe recognize how this type of, wisdom moves into your world moves into your has moved into your life so that you're on the other side of it you're on the other side of it it's and that's that is um that is insight that recognition that that ability to discern this is wise this is not wise this is necessary this is not necessary and and do it just without thinking and you begin to trust yourself you can sometimes, you know, have this this kind of aha moment and go, oh, no, that's not right. That's not right. Or that's right. No, that's the way to go. 
and you begin to have trust. When you're first doing this, sometimes you need to, you really should check with other people because we're still so new on the path. I remember reading something by Tan Jeff, Tanasiro Biku, where he talked about you can't just, you know, what did the people say? Trust your heart. And it's like, well, we're so conditioned that we can't necessarily trust our heart as we're first starting out because it's we need to chip away at that conditioning and instead, um, you know, do the work and then have other folks sometimes go, no, yeah, you got it, you got it. But there's a sense uh, a lot of times when that intuitive wisdom is there that you're like, oh, yeah, this is right. It just feels right because you've included just your body, your heart, your mind. It's all working together. It's not compartmentalized, trying to intellectually stuff it in. So that is um, um, oh, a couple things I want to say. One is that, you know, talking about the body, people who have a lot of trauma, it may not be safe for them. It may not feel safe for them because bo- trauma is cap- kept in the body. We experience it. So if you're doing this practice and you start having a, 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 a reaction, you might want to pull back. You know, this this mindfulness is not one size fits all and solves everybody's problems. So there's a, there's always a caveat to that. There's always a, you know, put a toe in the water and then pay attention. And don't we don't do this alone either, especially when we're starting out. We have the wise to guide us and support us as we move through this and maybe say go over here. Um, so that's the one thing. And then the second thing, I, my experience with this practice and this this discernment and this really being able to be present with what was happening started when I started doing body scan meditation I had a teacher who suggested I needed to do that and I started doing that and it was like oh I get it I get it this familiarity with with where my emotions are and this ability to sit and be present even when I didn't want to be, did it anyway. So those are my thoughts on insight and wisdom and discernment. And thank you uh, for your generous attention. And may it be of benefit to, to you in some way, shape, or form. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.